I think the vast majority of people were like me. They weren't trained in uh, oil and gas. They didn't grow up in oil and gas. They thought that there was going to be an energy transition, and they were sorely disappointed. They were exposed enough to other information besides just what was in the company that they knew that the company was heading down the wrong path. But like me, they didn't have many job opportunities to go to. And like me, when they hired on, they didn't have a lot of job opportunities to go to. That was their experience throughout their career, that having spent so much time in education, in academia, and uh, working so hard to get advanced degrees, that when they came out, there weren't that many choices. And oil and gas was pretty much it. And they thought that they were sold the story that, well, we won't be oil and gas for much longer. They were also similarly disappointed, but they, like me, found there weren't many off-ramps that we could take to to get out of oil and gas. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Do you know anyone whose company pollutes more than they'd like, who wants to change things, but whose company keeps not acting? I think that situation describes almost everyone that I know. Even the most sustainable companies aren't close to sustainable. They just pollute a bit less than everybody else. This is from Patagonia to Greenpeace. Maybe it describes you. Maybe it fits your elected officials or school administrators or church leaders or people like that as much as your employer. Today's guest worked at Exxon for 16 years. If any place qualifies as the poster child for contributing to climate change, well, today's guest, Darlan Chang, can tell us the view from the inside. If you'd like to change or change your company, but you feel frustrated, you'd like to do something, but what can I do? Darlan probably faced bigger hurdles with more to lose. After 16 years with a wife and daughter with no job to go to, he left for a new life. He'll share his story, and there's a link to the story that he talks about that brought him to me, but a preview of what to listen for. He prepared. He didn't just leave out of the blue, but he also shares that he wished he'd acted earlier. Another major theme that I consider more valuable coming from someone who knows the science, technology, financing, and history, he found technology from what he did to fusion has a role, but is not the final answer. It's much more about culture, which I'm bringing his story to help change. Here's Darlan Chang. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Darlan Chang. Darlan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. You know, I just said this before we hit record, but, you know, thank you for being on. I wish we didn't live in the world in which you had to do the things you had to do just to feel comfortable, if I'm saying it right. I heard about you. I don't know how I originally found the article, but I read about you having worked at Exxon for 16 years and originally optimistic and then gradually less so and for me, coming from a background in a background in science, and I got a PhD in physics and an MBA, and I went through this process of, you know, fusion is the answer. Clearly, fusion would be the answer. And if we make everything more efficient, then problems are all solved. We'll desalinate water. And, it'll, and, you know, I don't, now that there's all these environmental problems, despite my background in science, I choose to work in leadership because I believe it's much less about technology, much more about people and our behavior and changing that. And I feel like that's been a journey that you've been on too. Yes, uh, exactly. I, I'm glad that you had a chance to read the, the article. Uh, it was an anti-climate news article, and uh, it was republished by some other publications as well. I had a very similar journey to you at the University of Illinois. I uh, heard a lot of talk about um, how our energy problems would be solved by uh, nuclear fusion. But in the meantime, we should try to speed up the fossil fuel transition as much as we can. Now, I, at the time, felt that uh, science and technology were bipartisan, that it wasn't political, and I wasn't very political at the time. I had a lot of faith in uh, beavering away at my equations and my simulations and doing my part and making the technologies happen, making the changes happen from a technological standpoint. And just, sorry to interrupt, but just to clarify, this is while you're at Urbana-Champaign? This is while you're getting your PhD? Yeah, this is University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I was there from 1994 
It was a wrong impression. Um, <laughs> I myself wasn't working in nuclear. I was working on a making ways to ways to make gasoline engines more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my graduate school research. Uh, I researched sprays into internal combustion engine and how to make the sprays better so that you get better burns and, and more efficiency. But uh, when I graduated, I was trying to get into the automotive industry. And it, it, at the time, there weren't many jobs. The oil and gas industry was hiring, though, and they were willing to take mechanical engineers because they went through two decades of low oil prices and not a lot of people enrolling in petroleum engineering. So they were happy to take mechanical engineers, even though I didn't have any petroleum background. They trained me up. They gave me the time to train up. And I think that was a time when um, they they were willing to take people who were just willing to learn and willing to, to get up to speed very quickly. And I look back at that time and I wonder why don't we have that right now for renewable energy? But uh, back at the time, they got me into the fossil fuel industry. I expected that over my career there, we would make the transition away from fossil fuels. And uh, I uh, did what I could. We being, sorry to interrupt, but we being Exxon, you figured Exxon would, they're doing a lot of extraction and, and discovery, but that they would transfer over into being an energy company of the future or something like that? Yes. Again, I wasn't very political at the time, so I didn't follow a lot of the uh, politics around ExxonMobil and how they were publishing things to uh, deny climate change. I was more influenced by the people who recruited me, and uh, I was told we're an international energy company at ExxonMobil. We will change with the times. Uh, Back in the 80s, we were looking at nuclear and renewables, and it will come again when um, society is ready for the transition. We're going to be at the forefront of that as well. And so it was my expectation, based on what turned out to be false uh, recruiting practices, Mm -hmm. which was we're an energy company. And uh, I continued to recruit others, saying that we were an energy company all the way through 2006, 2007. Then the financial crisis hit 2008, and a lot of people uh, were struggling to find jobs. They're finding them in a similar situation, finding themselves in a similar situation to what I found when I was graduating. And uh, oil and gas was willing to take them in. Still, in 2009, we were telling people, yeah, we're an energy company. We're taking on the world's toughest energy challenges. We will make the transition when a society is ready for it. But then we bought XTO, which was an unconventional gas company. And uh, then things changed. And then recruiting changed. And uh, we began doubling down and saying we're an oil and gas company. Other companies can worry about renewables and alternatives. We're best at oil and gas. And uh, I think the reason was that we spent $41 billion on XTO. And there was a desperation there to make this giant purchase work, make it profitable, make us look good for uh, for making that purchase. I knew a few years after that, we actually had an internal study within the company about uh, unconventional oil and gas. And that study had concluded that uh, it was not profitable in the long run. So against the recommendations of our research company, the executives had bought XTO. And I think because of that, along with oil prices being very high through 2014, we doubled down even more on oil and gas. Now, I had started working on drilling, and um, I, I realized that a lot of the work I was doing was not just for fossil fuels. I was working on helping drillers be like race car drivers and be able to drill as fast as they could without going so hard that they would have to make a pit stop and replace their bit. Um, so it's very analogous to race car drivers trying to drive as long as they can without having to replace their tires. Uh, so I was working on technology to make drilling better and make recommendations to the drillers so that they could go faster without having to do a pit stop. Uh, and I realized, look, we can use this for geothermal. We can use this for uh, the deep drilling that geothermal requires so that you can get the hot rocks to get water that's, uh, that's hot enough that you can have steam to run power plants. Uh, and we can also use this for carbon sequestration. So why are we considering this? Why are we only considering this for XTO wells? Why are we so focused on unconventionals? And uh, I didn't really get much enthusiasm for that uh, I think uh, a lot of the peers I talked with, they said, that sounds really interesting to me, but I don't think management is going to be happy with that. And uh, then we, we had our move. Uh, in 2014 and 2015, we moved to a new campus in spring, and uh, that doubled my commute from 20 miles to 50 miles away. So, so I don't know, when you say our move, was that your, your family moved to be closer, or no. was it the whole company moved? No, it was the whole company moved. My family decided to stay where we were at, but the whole company moved our research company campus to consolidate with all the other Houston offices 
up in the northwest of Houston, which for a lot of people doubled their commute like me. And um, I had an electric vehicle. It uh, was a Nissan Leaf 2011, only had 70 miles range. And uh, I asked for an electric vehicle charger because it's a hundred miles round trip to the new campus. And uh, we were making a lot of, uh, we make a big deal about a big culture change and how the new campus is gonna be more sustainable. And I asked for an electric vehicle charger because I can't drive the Leaf there and get back round trip on a 70 mile range. So uh, it got bounced around a number of times, but nobody would give me any positive um, confirmation about it. And in the end, they never did it. Uh, so I ended up being in a van pool. But at that time, I was already starting to think, uh, I, I don't think the company is going to back away from doubling down on oil and gas. I'm trying to make a difference by speaking out at uh, forums and speaking out publicly about my concerns about climate change. As an Exxon person or just as a private citizen? As a employee, at employee forums. Oh, within the company? Within the company. So I would speak out at our employee forums and I would speak out uh, to management about um, how we weren't seriously considering climate change opportunities and how we kept seeing climate change as a threat rather than as an opportunity to contribute and uh, make a positive contribution. And after speaking out, I would get a handful of people telling me after the presentation that uh, they agreed with me and they thought it was important, but they would also warn that uh, management is not very receptive to this. And uh, at the time, there was a lot of there was a lot of concern from employees about whether the performance ranking system would change. And the performance ranking system was the number one employee concern about um, getting it to be reformed or uh, abolished altogether so that employees could feel free to speak out. And at the time, management was trying to tell employees, we're listening to you. We want to hear what you say. We want to find out what are the barriers to you speaking up. And performance ranking was number one. Well, a couple of years later, they announced that we're not going to fundamentally change performance ranking. The people who are making the decision, they benefited from performance ranking. They did just fine from that system, and uh, they weren't willing to do away with it. And that was just one straw out of many straws that broke my back uh, about how the culture of the company was not changing and uh, how my daughter was getting older, um, getting almost in middle school without really an opportunity to grow up to see what's like in a life without uh, fossil fuels dominating. And Houston was a town that was built around fossil fuels. People, their livelihood depend on, on fossil fuels. When I tried to get solar panels installed in my house, my homeowners association blocked me. They claimed that it was because they thought it was aesthetically unpleasing, but uh, I believe that in reality, they uh, saw it as a threat to their livelihood. And uh, I didn't want my daughter growing up in that kind of culture and uh, I was willing to leave it all behind. So my wife and I decided to find a sustainable. Oh, wait, before going on to the next stage, I want to, can I explore a bit more about your time in Houston? Yes. Because there's a, well, just the immediate thing was, you also mentioned your daughter and her school talking about climate change or um, the environment there. Yes, that was another straw that helped break the camel's back in that my, my daughter came home one day from a fifth grade class. And uh, she said that her teacher had told the class that she wanted to teach about climate change, but she wasn't allowed to. And uh, that really made me angry that uh, my daughter's generation, they're the ones that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. And uh, the teachers are not allowed to talk about it. They're not allowed to teach about it. And um, I was very upset by hearing this, but I was already in the midst of uh, uh, planning to leave, planning to leave the company and planning to leave Houston. And before all this, you, you gave me like the play-by-play. And I'm, I'm curious what the emotional journey was like for you. What I heard was that at the beginning, it was optimistic, maybe cautiously optimistic, and then a slow maybe beating down, but also hope of maybe being possible to change. What was it like inside or, and, or maybe within the family as well, because your wife and, and daughter are part of it as well? Right. The emotional journey was at the beginning. We thought that uh, we were joining. I was joining a career in a very large company that had a lot of responsibilities to society that we held accountable that um, would ultimately have to make the changes that society needs. And uh, I could be a part of that eventually. But I realized going in that I was working on uh, fossil fuels. And my wife made the move from Chicago to Houston, also with this expectation that uh, my career would develop at ExxonMobil. And uh, I would be able to make a difference in this fossil fuel transition. 
we had our daughter in um, 2008, and um, Hurricane Ike hit that year, along with the financial crisis in September. My daughter was only two months old, and uh, we were without power for four days. We didn't have running water. And my wife was very upset uh, that um, we were trying to take care of an infant in, in the midst of these conditions. And then after the power came back, we found out that uh, the rest of the country seemed to have forgotten about us because the financial crisis was more in the news than Hurricane Ike was. So my wife was starting to feel that um, this was a mistake to come to Houston around that time. And also, I had complained to my wife uh, for many years, uh, from 2006 to 2009, about how I was working on what I felt was like a space shuttle challenger situation where I worked on a cryogenic technology where a temperature gradient could result in structural failure. And I was warning my management and my management didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to give any bad news to their management. Otherwise they would suffer in the performance ranking. So they started keeping me out of the, the uh, meetings. I felt like an engineer on, on challenger and I didn't want this project to, to end up like what happened to challenger. I knew that it wasn't going to happen immediately, unlike Challenger, where they were arguing about it a day before launch. In this case, the project was going to uh, be online in three or four years. So I got punished in the performance ranking by management. I got moved to another division. And in the other division, I told the division manager, look, I've got a safety concern. I'd really like to make my case. He let me talk with the vice president of the company. Uh, the vice president was receptive, and he brought in a senior technical person to oversee the commissioning of that project. So all's well that ended well with that project, but I already had was um, losing my faith that uh, things were going to turn out all right in the company because my personal experience with management not willing to listen to uh, anything but happy talk and, and good news. Yeah, I think your story resonates. I suspect that a lot of people listening to you right now are thinking about the companies where they work. I know... Yeah. As a professor at NYU, NYU gives all this talk about, you'll never hear them say the same thing, th these two things at the same time. Part of the time they say, we have the greenest campus of like any American university, right? They're downtown Manhattan. Everyone takes a subway. It's like pretty easy to be green in the sense of uh, it's very compact and so forth. Other times they'll talk about how there's this global university because they got campuses at Dubai and Shanghai and all over the world. And the flying around is like probably hundreds of thousands of flights per year, uh, maybe different during the pandemic. But they don't talk about, when they talk about how green the campuses are, they don't talk about that. So and this is one example of many. And it's uh, the talk and the action are so different. I think in the hearts, when they say it, I think they really feel like, some of the administrators really feel like, yeah, we are going to change. But when it comes down to it, everything else is always a higher priority. Yes. It's always something. And they yes. really will get to it. In their hearts, I think they will. But it remains... Well, the pandemic changed everything, so it's tough to say right now. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people, wherever they are, whether it's a, an oil company or just any company, it probably pollutes more than it needs to. Right. Probably everyone sees it. Everyone wants to change. Certainly at NYU, if I go, if I'm in a building that's air conditioned to 60 degrees when it's 100 degrees outside, and I go to the environmental people, they're like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do because the super says that this one room in the building if it's not cooled down to 60, or cooled down to, when it gets cooled down to say 70, the rest of the building's down to 50, there's nothing we can do. I'm like, there's a lot you can do, but it's frustrating. I wanted to get that down because the next stage is I think what a lot of people dream of doing and would like to do. And I hope that they feel, I hope that there's some connection there. So sort of interrupted, but I really wanted to get like what it was like on the inside. And, and I suspect that the next stage was, I don't know how easy or hard it was. That is, so now, sorry to interrupt, but... Yeah, yes, of course. Well, well, the next stage was that I started looking for information outside of uh, the, traditional, the traditional media and within my company. Uh, I, I needed something to balance out all the things that uh, I was being to doubt about hearing within the company. And um, I started to be concerned about peak oil because oil prices had fluctuated so wildly up until 2008. They ran up to... $147 a barrel before the financial crisis. And then after the financial crisis, they, they dropped for a while to the 30s and 40s, but then they went back to $100 per barrel uh, because of the uh, desperate efforts around the world, like China, to restart their economies. In China, they would rebuild, they would build new cities that were completely empty just to get people employed. So they would spend a lot on, on oil, and that was uh, part of the reason why oil prices were able to get back to $100 per barrel. 
And uh, my concern with peak oil was uh, when I went online, I researched a topic myself. I wasn't in the social media, so I didn't have anything in a feed. I, we just searched for information. I ran across uh, Tom Murphy's Do the Math. I ran across uh, Ugo Bardi and uh, the oil drum. I ran across uh, resilience.org later to become the Post Carbon Institute. Uh, the writings of Richard Heinberg and Matt Simmons, they really influenced me. And the roots of their writings were in the Club of Rome and uh, the Limits of Growth that was published back in 1972. I had real concerns that um, up until then, my academic training and my exposure in industry never really questioned that uh, the economic growth model uh, could be um, fulfilled, that we would have enough resources to be able to continue exponential growth. But uh, another a thought leader was uh, Al Bartlett. Um, he, he really influenced me, uh, seeing his writings about exponential growth. And um, having a, a, a highly engineering-oriented background, um, I was very receptive to their logical and mathematical arguments. And uh, I was very concerned at the time that the high oil prices were indicating that uh, we were at peak oil. What I didn't realize and uh, what um, was part of the transition to the next stage my emotional journey was that uh, finance could um, temporarily forestall peak oil and finance could temporarily make it look like the economic system could keep going, even though we're hitting natural limits. The truth was that uh, peak conventional oil had already happened, that um, the conventional oil that didn't require lots of complex technology and lots of financing, that had already peaked. But unconventional oil could actually keep increasing with a flood of, of money that uh, was printed out of nowhere, uh, that was a very low interest rates that came in from investors who uh, bought into the hype that uh, uh, unconventional oil and unconventional gas can uh, solve our energy problems. And um, from 2011 to 2014, that was a time that uh, we ExxonMobil had bought XTO, and we got into the unconventional gas business, and we were starting to get into the uh, hype around unconventionals. So peak oil was forestalled by a flood of financing, by a flood of money that came out of nowhere to pay for all the expensive equipment, expensive technology to make unconventional oil and gas work. A lot of unconventional gas just comes from the fact that they're from shale rock that is so tight with a very little connections between, between pores to be able to allow that gas to come to surface without a, a tremendous amount of uh, artificial lift. That was allowed by doing horizontal drilling and by doing fracturing to break the rock and allow the gas to escape the rock and for a short time to have very high production rates. But uh, of course, the long-term production was not considered. The fact that these unconventional gas wells lasted much less than the uh, conventional wells. The conventional wells could last two decades easily, but the unconventional gas wells, they typically could only last maybe two to four years before they had to be re-stimulated again. So all this technology came at a huge cost. And uh, I knew as well as anyone from my personal readings that uh, the energy return on investment, the energy return on energy invested was going down, the, the E-R-O-E-I. So like in finance, they like to talk about profits and the return on investment. You can do the same for energy. Uh, how much energy do you have to put in versus the energy that you get out? And for unconventional, you have to put a lot of energy embodied through the, the fracturing technologies, through the fracturing fluids, uh, through the stimulation. You had to put in a lot of energy to get less energy out because your wells didn't last as long. They only lasted a few years compared with a, a few decades. And uh, I saw the direction my company was taking. It was focusing on uh, doubling down on something that was not only bad for the environment, but would ultimately result to financial calamity later on. And I wasn't proven right until after I left the company. Can I wrap up a little there? That, that So it used to be something like 100 to 1. I'd, I'd use a barrel of oil and I'd get 100, oils, 100 barrels back out. The oil was virtually at the surface. Yes. You could dig down almost with a shovel at, at, way back at the beginning. Right. And then I was just watching Deepwater Horizon, the big popular movie, and they went through a mile of ocean yes. and then miles of, of, of rock to get to oil. Like this is... It's taking a lot of energy to get a little bit of, to get the energy back out. Yes. Once you get down, if you get down to one to one, then there's no benefit at all. Right. Yeah. An example of that would be uh, corn ethanol. You put so much energy into the fertilizers and the uh, 
the large tractors and the the farm equipment that gobbles up huge amounts of energy in order to grow the corn and then process it. And every time you process it, you lose a certain amount of energy. You process it into ethanol. It turns out that you're getting very close to one-to-one. So it becomes almost like uh, the, the only benefit that you're getting is that you, you're converting some solar power into some liquid fuels. And, and that's the part that they focus on. What they don't focus on, on is all the energy that went into the fertilizers and the uh, farm machinery in order to grow that corn. And also the corn that's not going into our mouths. Yes. That the resources that are devoted not to the economy. Yes. And it looks to me like a lot of corporate welfare going on there. Yes, absolutely. So I, I didn't anticipate this. Uh, a lot of the sites that I had read also didn't anticipate this. They expected that there would just be economic collapse when we hit peak oil. But the reality was that finance could uh, temporarily give us a sugar high to think that the system could still go on without any changes. And that temporary sugar high resulted in a lot of jobs. And a lot of people who bought into this story of, we can still keep the fossil fuel game going. We just need to keep the uh, the financial investments going. And I could see from this that um, this wasn't going to end well. And uh, it combined with my concerns about climate change, because I originally thought that peak oil was a thing that was going to make us force us to deal with decarbonizing the economy. But it turned out that finance made it such that climate change would force our hand, not peak oil. If climate change would. I mean, the signs of it are always 20 years after. But sorry, yeah, I couldn't help but think like... It's true. The people who profit off of what's causing it are going to find ways to keep keep people from not acting as long as they can. Yes, absolutely. What's happening now with the wildfires last year, that was um, baked in the cake decades before. Um, it was from our emissions that happened uh, around the time I was graduating, around the time that I, I left the university. And uh, the consequences of our actions right now are still probably decades away. Uh, however, the signs are so severe now that a majority of the population agrees that climate change is serious enough that the, the federal government should do more about it. So you're in Exxon thinking these things, talking to people about these things. Yes. And you know, let's, let's go to your decision to depart. If Maybe that's just where you're about to go. Yeah, my, my decision to depart was around 2015, 2016. That was when uh, we had moved to the new campus. There was this promise that we would reconsider performance ranking. We would look into making the campus more green. And uh, my request for electric vehicle charter ignored. Uh, I got back in touch with the professor from uh, uh, my university days, Professor Newell. Ty Newell had been involved with uh, alternative energy back when I was still a student. He had been involved, involved with solar ponds. And um, he was one of my professors for one of my thermodynamics classes. And I, I thought thermodynamics was so appropriate to the predicament that we were in. And uh, I got back in touch with him and um, he let me visit his, uh, his house and his manufacturing facility in Urbana. His house is um, near where they... They manufacture what's called a conditioned energy recover ventilator. And uh, he showed me how that conditioned energy recover ventilator, how how that was put together. And he also showed me the solar power that was being used for his house, as well as the green technologies that he had in his house. And I I was really moved by that. I was really impressed that this was all possible with current technology. It could all be done. It was all within our reach, and it didn't require some dramatic breakthrough to happen. I, I can't help but contrast. The saving energy is easy and the burning more fuels. It's like every the solution, everything's like, let's burn something more. Yes. That takes incredible amounts of financing. Yes. That, uh, and, but the world thinks it's the other way. Right. But you're yeah. in the middle of it and you actually see the opposite. Yeah. Professor Mule did this on his own dime on uh, making all these renovations on his house. And he started his own business to be able to bring this condition. He, his son started this business. He helped his son, Ben Newell, uh, start this business to bring to market a, a key component of, uh, of the house that I live in right now, uh, the condition energy recovery ventilator, recovery ventilator. It allows a house that has a high amount of insulation, doesn't allow a lot of air to escape or leak out or leak in. In, in that condition, you need to be able to bring in fresh air. And ideally, you bring in fresh air at the right time 
And whenever you bring in the fresh air, you, you have the outgoing air exchange the heat and, and pass that heat to the fresh air that's coming in. So the air exchanges, but the heat stays in. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. And uh, it, it has technology to be able to t- detect what the CO2 and the volatile organic compound level is in your house. So it only brings in the fresh air when, when it needs it, when the CO2 level or the VOC level gets too high. And uh, every time it brings in fresh air, it keeps 80% of the heat. So you lose 20%, but you still keep 80% of the heat. And you end up with better air quality than a leaky house. God, I just think of, of you know, after watching Deepwater Horizon, I was reading about the, the spill. And I think of the, the time and energy and resources just to clean up the mess, which went terribly because they, they scattered all the stuff, which like made it worse. Yes. Apparently. Actually, I, I was involved with that. Um, I wasn't at BP, but ExxonMobil was involved with the efforts to find solutions for the BP also, Deepwater Horizon, Macondo spill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I was part of the team that was looking at uh, doing simulations of uh, the the ways to kill the well from the top, kill the well uh, by putting a cap over it uh, or kill the well by injecting junk to to clog up the uh, the well. And uh, we ultimately lost to the group that was focusing on how to disperse the well. People that were focused on figuring out technologies for dispersing the well they were welcomed as heroes. Uh, a year later, they were given technical achievement awards. While all the folks who were trying to find ways to stop the spill outright as soon as possible, we were just ignored. And uh, I'm about to cry. It, it was because it was much less costly to hide the bodies by dispersing the oil and dispersing the evidence than it was to stop the oil from leaking in the first place. And I think it's a perfect analogy with what's happening with climate change. Yeah, I mean the the pattern keeps happening over and over, and I got to say we regular citizens do it too. I mean, people keep saying Exxon knew. Yes, I believe that if Exxon knew and and hid information and and said one thing and did another, especially if they broke a law, I think that's what justice is for. People knew too. I grew up learning knowing all about sea level rise. I knew all about litter and and plastic and things like that, and. I was just like everyone else, like, well, what can I do? I'll just have to keep doing what I'm doing, which isn't that different than what Exxon did at a corporate level. But no one point, everyone's, man, it's always someone else, some other time, never me now, except the people who do say me now, love it. Like it's a, it's this difficult change. This has been my experience and the experience of people I've talked to. Uh, and I can't speak for people I haven't talked to. I haven't talked to them, but it's, oh, I can make the house have this heat exchange with like, it's my house is breathing. That's really awesome. It's easy. And okay. So you're in, you've just met with your professor. Yes. And he was changing my view of the world, just as you were describing uh, up until that time, I had been so programmed by my education, by my um, career. It was only somewhat tempered by my, my personally looking for information myself to counter what, what I felt was didn't seem right to me. But yeah, he changed my view that um, previously I had had been of the view that um, I'm part of uh, a great change by by our society to make things better for everyone, that uh, as a professional, as a well-educated person, that uh, I would have opportunities to contribute positively. And I was finding that was not the case. I was finding that uh, the system that I was in was just trying to keep things the way they were so that the people on top could remain on top, very much like the performance ranking system, my own experience of performance ranking system. When I tried to make a positive contribution, stop an accident from happen, happening, stop people from dying, our, our own employees at, at that, uh, just like the Challenger engineers are trying to stop the astronauts from being in a terrible accident. I was, in, in fact, punished. I was, in fact, pushed down in the performance ranking. And uh, the people that uh, hid the bodies, the people that... Uh, that uh, kept me from showing up at meetings and, and didn't tell the management about my concerns. They were promoted. They, they went higher up. And uh, a similar thing happened with BP oil spill. Um, the people who uh, hit the, the oil by dispersing it, they got promoted. They went up. And uh, I didn't want to be one of those people. I didn't want to rise in that kind of system. Uh, I wanted something different. And my professor, Professor Newell, was uh, showing me that I could. And... Um, I did want my daughter to grow up in a community, though. I didn't want to be like my professor and that he made this great uh, renovation and, and uh, made his house uh, uh, net zero and sustainable on his own in, in a neighborhood for, full of uh, conventional homes. I, 
I wanted my daughter to grow up in a community where everybody had a house like that. Everybody was committed to doing whatever we could as a, as a neighborhood and as a community to fight the uh, problems that were caused by previous generations. And uh, we looked for a sustainable, sustainable community back in 2015. We found a website for Geos Arvada, which is the neighborhood that I live in now. Uh, and that website, uh, it, uh, it was golden for me. Um, even though I couldn't do what my professor did and do this on my own, I saw that there was a community of people that were trying to do it. There was a developer that was building for people who wanted to do it. And so we started to think about moving. Um, we were willing to leave Houston. We, we already saw plenty of evidence that uh, there was just too much working against us in Houston to be able to live the way that we wanted and make a positive contribution to the uh, uh, social problems that uh, concerned us. And um, I gave my company a last chance uh, in the last couple of years. Look, uh, performance ranking, it was really at the heart of a lot of the problems that I saw within the company. Are you going to get rid of it? And when they said, we're not, we put in our order for the, uh, the home in Geos and we got ready to move. Yeah, it was around that time that my daughter came back from a fifth grade class to tell me that uh, her teacher couldn't teach about climate change. And you're like, oh, that's great. Now I don't have to think twice about that part of it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, my daughter and my, my wife moved to the new community before me uh, in the middle of my daughter's fifth grade school year. And immediately in her new class here in Arvada, Colorado, um, her school had a field trip to National Renewable Energy Lab. So she got to learn about climate change immediately after she moved here. Uh, I, I couldn't have timed it any better. But it really makes a difference what kind of industries are in your community. They have a big influence on what gets taught in that community. So oh, yeah. the community that's close to Natural Renewable Energy Lab, they encourage fifth grade teachers to, to teach about renewable energy and climate change. Yeah, I had a guest on the show a little while ago, Robert Ballot, who's a lawyer who took on DuPont in like Chemical Valley, I think it's called, in West Virginia, Ohio, where like DuPont is, I mean, if you get a job with DuPont, you're, you're set for life, but everyone's getting cancer all over the place, to say the least. I mean, all the cows are dying. And, but when someone goes against DuPont, it's like they're shunned, completely shunned by the community. Not completely, but you know, they've got to change church. They can't go to the same restaurants. They can't, you know, people are whispering when they're out, even though everyone's getting cancer. So the, the culture is so much, I mean, culture is you know, swimming upstream versus swimming downstream. You were swimming upstream in one place. You, yes. I believe, are helping move the United States, maybe the world to where what you're doing is downstream for the next people, even though you had to do it upstream. Yes, I think that my personal experience of colleagues and uh, of people in my generation is that we live in fear of losing our career because that's our lifeline, literally in many cases. Uh, there's no universal health care in the U.S. except for people over 65. So people in my generation are afraid of not being able to have health care. Uh, in addition, some of us are burdened with lots of debt. Some of it might be student debt, but other people may have bought more house than they could afford. They may have bought into keeping up with the Joneses. So that fear of not being able to pay your bills, not being able to pay back your debts, not having the lifeline to healthcare, that fear keeps people from speaking up, even if they have the same concerns that I have, even if they're seeing the same things that I have. Well, they must have kept you thinking too. I mean, you have a daughter. I mean, even if you don't have, I don't know if you had debt or not, or I don't know if you had um, concerns like that, but you have a daughter. That immediately means you must be thinking about her more than yourself in terms of food on the table, Right. Um, and uh, for a lot of Asian, Asian Americans like myself, uh, there's also a fear of being an immigrant and uh, uh, not really being accepted by the society unless you have a good paying job, unless you have a steady salary, uh, and unless your kids go to a really prestigious school. Uh, they're not going to have the same opportunities as people who have their families have been here for generations unless you can demonstrate those professional credentials and uh, have a really uh, outstanding school in your community. So a lot of these reasons uh, I, I found, I didn't want them to hold me back. And so I, I did start, you know, when I was having doubts about the, the industry, I already was starting to cut back my expenses, save as much as I could, uh, give myself as much freedom to not be imprisoned by debt, not be imprisoned by the fear of what other people will think of me. And uh, maybe that's part of the reason why I was okay with leaving Houston altogether, 
I didn't really care much for the culture and I didn't really care if people looked down on what I was doing. But what what has been surprising is that uh, after I, I left and after I made the move, I, I felt free. And some people, they, they kept in touch with me from my old company. And they said that, well, I want to be free too. Uh, do you, you have any pointers? Do you have any tips? And it was like they, they had to do it under the table, be quiet about it, not, not be too open about it. But they also wanted to leave. And they also were seeing the same things that, that I did. And I, I think that our generation has a lot to contribute to solving the problem. We are at the prime of our careers. We are capable of doing a lot because of our connections and because of our skills. And um, we're just being held back by our fear of uh, being shunned by the system, being disconnected from the system. And uh, to whatever extent people can, I, I would highly recommend that they get out of debt, uh, that they stop having that debt hang over them, that they downsize. They, they don't need to keep up with the Joneses anymore. And they don't need to live contrary to their values just to, just to say that they're part of the system when there's so, so much wrong with the system to begin with. Were you scared? Were you, I mean, you did not have a job when you left Exxon and you were taking on a new house. Yeah, I tried to apply for uh, jobs at the National Renewable Energy Lab. Yeah, in, in retrospect, I, I hadn't considered uh, applying for startup companies. Um, I hadn't applied for uh, small companies. Uh, I hadn't considered starting my own business. I was still in the middle of a three-hour round-trip commute. Uh, I was still in the middle of uh, high pressure in order to keep my job and keep my standing and performance ranking. So I probably didn't consider as many options as I could have. But I was okay with uh, not having a job secured uh, and, and leaving the company. Now, I was disappointed, too, that uh, there's, there's not a lot of opportunities to be able to transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy. I, I didn't have a role model. I didn't have somebody who had done it to look up to. So that was scary that uh, I was doing this completely flying blind with no, no role model to, to go with. The closest thing was my professor, but of course he, uh, he, he retired and uh, that was part of the reason why I could do all these projects. I, I was not retiring. I was just trying to transition my career. And uh, moving to the new community, I, I did worry that we didn't have employee health insurance and, and we just ended up getting um, a health insurance that we paid for entirely on our own. Uh, it wasn't very high quality. My my wife has a chronic condition that uh, uh, we were really worried about being able to pay for that medication for the chronic condition. But it turned out okay because um, it turned out that uh, the job market for service workers was was actually quite good in our area. And my uh, my wife was able to get a job at a health food store, uh, and that job had health insurance and. Um, we were able to pay for her uh, chronic medication through that through, through that health insurance. So there's a little bit less pressure on me to be able to get a job right away. At first, when my wife was worried about her insurance, she said, well, maybe you consider just take a fossil fuel job for now, and the moment you get a renewable energy job, you can jump ship. Well, because my wife was able to get insurance, we were able to make the decision that, okay, I'm going to hold out until I can get a fossil fuel job. Uh, and in, in the meantime, I'm going to do whatever I can to build up this community, to um, make quick friends with our neighbors, to uh, network with renewable energy industry here. And I ended up giving a presentation at the Colorado Renewable Energy Society uh, in the fall of 2019. I ended up becoming a YouTube video called Imperiled Pensions. And uh, I talked for about 20 minutes about my experience at ExxonMobil and why I left and my concerns about how uh, the huge amount of financial debt was used to prop up the uh, increasing the story of increasing fossil fuels and increasing oil production, and the U.S. becoming um, the biggest oil producer in the world. And uh, the presentation was very well received. I, I got a lot of good compliments for it. I uh, had uh, one person at the Colorado Renewable Energy Society uh, give me suggestions about how I could get into renewable energy. Uh, but it turned out that um, a lot of those opportunities, they were very difficult to get, especially when the COVID-19 pandemic hit in full force last year. Just a week before the lockdown of COVID-19, I had an interview with the Department of Energy for a geothermal technology job. And uh, the interviewers, they, they told me that they're very open to bringing in fossil fuel workers. They, they want to get fossil fuel workers transitioned to geothermal 
uh, because it's renewable energy, it's always on, and we need huge breakthroughs to be able to drill very deep, 10 kilometers down or, or six miles down in order to get to 300 degrees C rock and use that to be able to get hot enough steam to power power plants. And I was very excited about that opportunity. Uh, they told me they'd get back to me in a week. COVID hit. Next yeah. week, COVID hit. Then it turned into four months. And after four months, they didn't have a position for me. There's so many things I want to ask. And there's a couple things. I'm really curious, and I don't know if you can share this or not. Back to Exxon, the people within Exxon, do they really believe? I mean, maybe you said that you were recruited and they said, we'll switch over. And then you told others that, that we're going to switch over. And maybe the people who told you actually believed it. And maybe there's like people really believe there's no problem with climate change. There's no problem with plastics. There's no problem with displacing people from the land when we, when we dig. And, or are they jaded and they think, well, we're all going down. I might as well do well for myself as long as I can. Or is it just like, I don't care. Let's just go for the dollars. I've had an example of, of every type of person, every type of personality you just suggested. I think there is an inherent personality that people have, regardless of um, what their background might be. There are some who are, are just going to be in it for themselves, and they're, they're not too concerned about what happens to everybody else. There are some who um, become jaded, who were previously hopeful and optimistic, and then they become jaded. An example of that is one of my former colleagues. He, he used to work for ITER, the nuclear fusion demonstration project, uh, and he, uh, he went to ExxonMobil. And uh, I asked him at the time when he joined Exxon, well, what do you think of fusion? Do you think it's uh, just around the corner? Is it going to revolutionize um, our industry? And he said yes at the time. That was about 10 years ago. Uh, but then when I was just about to leave the company, I had another conversation with them, and he was really jaded. Uh, he, he thought that there just wasn't enough international support and financing to really make nuclear fusion work. He thought that it could have worked if we got enough people and enough money to make it happen, but it didn't happen. And he was very jaded and cynical and uh, thinking that uh, we should just prepare for the worst, just prepare to ride out uh, the collapse that's going to happen. Then I have known other people who um, they, they rationalize and they, they end up coming to the conclusion that um, uh, what they're doing isn't wrong because um, there's a conspiracy. Uh, there are people who are easily um, persuaded if it, if it benefits them that uh, climate scientists are, are fudging the data in order to make sure that they have job security. They're kind of projecting onto the scientists. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like what their situation is. Yeah. Yes. That, uh, oh, they're just trying to preserve their job and they're destroying my job and they preserve their job. They, they see it as an us versus them against climate scientists and, and who's trying to keep their job and who's, who's being dishonest about it in order to keep their job. But I think the vast majority of people were like me, that um, they weren't trained in uh, oil and gas. They didn't grow up in oil and gas. They thought that there was going to be an energy transition, and they were sorely disappointed. And um, they were exposed enough to other, other information besides just what was in the company that they knew that the company was heading down the wrong path. But like me, they didn't have many job opportunities to go to. And like me, when they hired on, they didn't have a lot of job opportunities to go to. That was their experience throughout their career, that having spent so much time in education, in academia, and uh, working so hard to get advanced degrees, that when they came out, there weren't that many choices. And oil and gas was pretty much it. And they thought that they would sold the story that, well, we won't be oil and gas for much longer. So they, they were also similarly disappointed. But they, like me, found... There weren't many off-ramps that we could take to, to get out of oil and gas. It reminds me of um, one of my big heroes. I think I talked to you about him when we spoke before, W. Edwards Deming, who approaches a systems perspective, as, as does uh, Limits to Growth. He put it very succinctly, a bad system beats a good person every time. If we don't change the culture, the system, and which means changing the beliefs, the images, the stories, the role models, if that doesn't change, then everyone who goes up against it we'll just get swept back into it, which is why this podcast is, well, I consider you a role model for many others. I, I believe that most people that I know have some sort of feeling like, yes, I get that there's a problem out there. Yes, I want to do something about it. But what I do, what can I do? It won't make a difference. And besides, the cost to me is so high and the benefit to the world that I could possibly bring is so low that it makes sense for me just to keep doing what I was doing. If I'm not mistaken, your experience 
mirrors that of many people that I know that are not, this is not the mainstream story, but that once you committed to change, that it was, you wish you had changed earlier, that it was obvious. All that doubt and wondering, once you commit, things start falling into place and you start realizing, like you start having suddenly, like you said, it was coincidence that your daughter suddenly got climate change uh, education. But I would bet that anytime you did it, that would happen. That more of what caused that to happen was not that it would happen, she happened to be at the right place at the right time, but that you had chosen to move and probably virtually any place you moved, that would have happened. And things like that would happen all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree that I, I had some bias myself, some blinders on myself from um, uh, the, the, the curse of prior investments that I, I put so much into this career of uh, 15 years of my uh, prime years um, that I had put so much into uh, mechanical engineering and the belief that uh, science and technology were bipartisan and that uh, the technological change would change society. And I was wrong. And uh, after coming here, I was finally able to see how wrong I was, that um, it, it is very political. It is very political to, to want to make change. And technology by itself does not make things better. We need technology with heart, with meaning, real capability of addressing the long challenges of uh, human inequality, human cruelty to each other, and human disregard for the environment and, and nature. Um, and uh, Yes, it, it took me quitting to, to see how wrong I was and to see that I, I could have done, done this earlier, that I could have been a very different person if I'd realized that uh, uh, climate change and the energy challenges, they were political and I needed to be political to make a difference. Of course, part of it was my personal bias. I'm naturally an introvert. Uh, I naturally gravitated to the idea of beavering away like Albert Einstein coming up with uh, some breakthrough that will revolutionize science and technology. But I was raised on the wrong stories. And um, as you mentioned to me last week, uh, maybe the story I should have grown up on was uh, Harriet Tubman and the uh, Underground Railroad. Yeah. Did she, she went back in and saved others and brought, I mean, she risked her life going back into a territory where it was unsafe in order to bring people back out because she had seen, is that the part that, what you're referring to? Because she did a lot. Well, I'm saying that I might have been, I might have taken a different life path if I'd grown up on her story rather than Albert Einstein's story. Oh, I thought in particular also because she, after she escaped a life of, of slavery, she could have just continued living and been, been fine. But she chose to go back and put herself in danger in order to bring people back out and bring them to Canada uh, through the Underground Railroad. Yes. And in some ways, I feel like that's what I'm doing right now. I, I'm doing what. Uh, my colleagues warned me not to do, which is to speak out and to be out there. I, I probably closed all the doors that I, I could close to go back in the fossil fuel industry, but I freed myself from that fear of not being able to get a job in the fossil fuel industry again. What I hope, though, is that I can open doors for others. Maybe part of it is I, I want to open a door for myself, but maybe this is the open door, that um, maybe my role is not to beaver away at technologies and come up with technological breakthrough, because I see in my own community that it doesn't require technological breakthroughs. It just requires people seeing that they don't have to live like this. They can live differently, and we can preserve the, the future for, for, for my daughter's generation and generations to follow if we just have the will to do things different. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Does your view on nuclear and fusion mirror mine now, especially after reading Limits to Growth and after reading Tom Murphy's stuff, which I'll put the links to in the liner notes for all the listeners. I mean, Tom Murphy's blog is, do the math, is just fantastic. It, it's like, do these things work? And it's not, so many people have opinions. And then you do the math and then the math figures out for you. It's like, 
And then same with limits to growth on a much bigger scale. And my most technologies reflect the interest of the people of the interest. They, they augment and amplify the goals of the people utilizing them, using them. And if the goal of the person is perpetual growth, then fusion will lead to more and more growth. If we keep doing that, we'll we'll mirror what happened with the green revolution with Norman Borlaug, who he saw starving people. And he was like, I got to save their lives right here, right now. And he did. Half his career, he was saying, someone has to figure out the population problem too. We have two problems. People are dying right here, right now. And we have a system that will create, recreate that situation, if, even if I solve this one here or now. And to his credit, he solved the immediate problem. To his discredit, I don't, know, I don't want to say discredit, but something that didn't happen was to solve the systemic problem. And as he predicted, for half his career, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, Malthus was wrong. Well, Norman Barlog knows more about Malthus than anyone. And half his career, the second half of his career, every single time he spoke, I understand, he would speak of what he called the population monster, this perpetual growth of the population mirroring the GDP. And because we've believed, and most people still believe, that growing a population will help the economy. If we don't, then we don't have jobs. If we don't have jobs and the infrastructure falls apart, the hospitals all go away and people are dying in childbirth and everyone dies at 30 years old and we're back to the stone age, which is not the case at all, but that's what people believe. And so he solved the problem. And then a couple of decades later, as he predicted, we're hitting the same limits just now with more people. If we got fusion, it would be too, too cheap to meter for a while. And then we would grow and grow and grow. You know, everyone's like, oh, we're leveling off at 10 billion, somewhere around there. First of all, we're over... 10 billion is over what's sustainable. So that's going to just forestall a collapse, just leveling off. We, we'd have to get down to below that. But if we could get a, if we had fusion, all the assumptions driving that leveling off would go away because suddenly there'd be energy too cheap to meter and we'd be building like crazy until I have no idea what the numbers would be, but it would certainly be a lot higher than 10 billion. And we would have to stop at that point. If we can't stop now, if we believe we can stop then, then we can stop now. And if we can stop now, why not? I mean, and fusion would just, it would just repeat the green revolution's effect of forestalling the immediate problem and creating a much bigger problem later. Right. Again, I think that was the wrong story. Again, it was something that appealed to scientific-minded, technology-minded people. But just like maybe the wrong story for me was Albert Einstein, maybe I should have followed Harry Tubman. Uh, maybe this is the wrong story too, that nuclear fusion will solve all, all of our energy problems and population problems. Maybe the right story for the population problem is that countries with more women's rights, countries with better education, they have lower childbirth rates. And giving women um, equal rights and, and giving women good education, giving not only women, but everybody better education about the population problem, uh, I think that would be far more effective than putting up as many nuclear fusion reactors as we can to, to support all the additional people that are being brought into the world. I think this message has to come from people with science backgrounds, especially physics because, and engineering, because it's so tempting just to believe it. Well, there's no radioactivity. There's no waste. There's, um, you know, you can just keep it going forever. It's, it's, you know, it uses the fuel as just seawater. And why would we not do it? And from a systems perspective, obviously, if you make, if you drive a system that, that produces effects that you want, faster, you'll get effects you don't want faster, even if you make part of it less polluting. That's so, yeah, I can't act like it's obvious. It's obvious after you see it. Before you see it, it's like very subtle. After you see it, it's like, oh my God, like that would continue what we've been doing since the steam engine. Yeah. But a technological fix is bipartisan. It, it used to be. It used to be everybody could, could agree with technological fix. But um, changing the way people live, changing the way we see things, uh, that takes far more time. Ideally, it would be done through education, but a lot of times education is, is defunded and deprioritized uh, as it was in the U.S. And uh, unfortunately, changing people's minds uh, takes a lot more effort, and, and that's why technological fixes are, are so much more appealing. That's why I'm bringing you on, because I think I said this already, but that what you did was on a bigger scale and probably at, well, it's different for a lot of people, but at probably greater personal risk than a lot of others because of the family, because of the distance you're traveling, because of how deep you were in one industry without being able to, you didn't have connections to, the, to other industries. And yet you did it. And correct me if I'm wrong, you wish you had done it earlier. 
Yeah, I, I wish I would. Yeah, it, it took meeting up with Professor Kaimul. It, it took um, uh, seeing that um, there was just no no going back with my company. That my company was not going to change the performance ranking system. It was not going to change its culture. I I probably held out longer than I needed to, uh, and then I should have because of all of my prior investment. And um, that's what makes it so hard. I, I think that's the reason why it's so hard to change people's mind. They've had so much prior investment in the system. They fear changing it. They fear challenging it. Well, whatever happens to you for the rest of your career, I hope that part of it is also maybe just a side hustle, but something of public speaking and bring the story out that so many people, all they need is maybe one role model or a couple role models or just knowing that it's possible or knowing that they're not alone, knowing that someone else was in deeper and came out cleaner. Is that a part of it? Are you thinking about that? Yes, I am. It's not my natural personality. Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah, <laughs> I take a personality test. I, I'm definitely on the introvert side, but I'm motivated by my my daughter. I am motivated by the thought that a lot more has to be done to change people's minds, and uh, I can do it because of my own experience and because of the freedom I got from finding a way to cut the ties with the system and uh, be part of a community that could be the beginning of a new way of life that is much more positive and much more fulfilling. I hope to bring you back for a second episode and to talk about that forward-looking part and what might come next. I wanted to bring two big stories of where you came from and that challenge that I hope a lot of people connect with and then that shift. But I didn't think about looking forward. And uh, I hope, hopefully you can come back another time and, and share that part. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, certainly it, uh, there, there's been a lot of change in the last couple of weeks because of the article and because of all the people reaching out to me and all the people that are offering support and trying to help me find a path forward. Maybe in a few months, I can uh, uh, give you an update on, on what happens. I hope so. Yeah. And then I'll bring you on if you're game. Yeah. Can people who are listening contact you or is that something, I mean, I'll link to the article. Yes, I, I'd be happy for them to contact me. So uh, I have a LinkedIn profile. If you're on LinkedIn, you can feel free to connect with me. And my email is what are the nine five seven. So it's just one word. What are the nine five seven at yahoo.com. If you're wondering what that means, nine. Yeah, I'm like September fifty seven. <laughs> no, nine five seven are just random odd numbers. So what are the odds? Ah, okay. What are the odds? But actually, nine five seven might have come from a radio station that I liked as well. Uh, I like the music uh, on ninety five point seven. Now, I, I'm, the geek in me is like, pursue this because I, I want to talk to you about Richard Feynman and all this other stuff that I came across when reading about you. But to wrap up here, is there anything to, I didn't think to bring up about what we talked about or anything you want to say directly to listeners? Yeah, I, I think there, I, I took a lot of inspiration from uh, Richard Feynman and, and maybe he was an even better role model for me than Albert Einstein was because as great as he was in physics, um, maybe his biggest contribution to society was to, to highlight what happened with the space shuttle Challenger accident. Because of what he pointed out, because of this demonstration with the O-ring and uh, what was the heart of the failure in communication between management and, uh, uh, and engineers, uh, there were engineering ethics courses that were taught, and I was a beneficiary of that. So he had a really big impact on me through what he was willing to do uh, to stick his neck out socially to challenge the system in the way that he could by pointing out the failures and in, uh, in what happened with the Challenger accident. I, I think that now it, it's actually resonated with me even more um, because now it's not just the failure of a cryogenic uh, projects. Um, it's not just the failure of an engineering uh, design. Now it's a failure in the system that we all live in. Uh, and we all can have our Richard Feynman moment where we can point out where uh, something happened and that inspires other people to want to change things for the better. And, and I hope I can do that uh, in my own, my own path through, through the future. I hope this augments that. Thank you. Darlan Chang, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. As I told him, once I read his story, I knew I had to do what I could to amplify it. If you're thinking of acting, but you think what I do won't make a difference, or the risk to me is too great, what can I do? First, consider Darlan's risk and that he wished he had acted earlier, not later. I guarantee that you will too. 
A major reason driving this podcast is that acting on your values improves your life. I've seen it happen over and over again. Now, there may be a transition, yes, but you'll get through the transition. Over and over, I see people with the most resources who say others with less, oh, they can't do it. Josh, you don't understand. People don't have the, have the resources that you do. Actually, the people who say that, they could act because they have the most resources, but they tend to feel the most trapped, even though they are most able to. Exactly what they got to create freedom traps them. So if you feel that you can't, consider that you may be more able to than you think. Consider that you may be more able to than Darlan was. I'll read a quote that has stood the test of time, and the people I know who have acted say that life continually proves accurate. It certainly has for me, however mysteriously. It's often attributed to Goethe, but it's not, but it's been around for a couple centuries. The quote goes, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, that ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. I'll put that quote in the text so you can read it at your leisure. You can look it up online. I find it happens over and over again. If you're thinking of acting, I hope this conversation with Darlan helped inspire you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.